0: you please uh, turn with me this morning to the prophecy of Jeremiah and chapter 17 this morning as we're continuing our studies through this book and as we're considering today the 17th chapter of Jeremiah. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 775. We've just prayed, Master, speak. And we've just made the commitment, Thy servant heareth. So, let us listen carefully to the Word of God as we read it together. most important part in the whole service, let's focus our minds. Judas' sin, verse 1, is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point, on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain in the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands, He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs, it did not lay. Is the man who gains riches by unjust means, when his life is half gone, they will desert him, and in the end he will prove to be a fool. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord The spring of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know, I have not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Do not be a terror to me, for you are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Stand also at all the other gates of Jerusalem. Say to them, hear the word of the Lord. O kings of Judah and all people of Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath. But keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers, yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then kings... ...who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses... ...accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. And this city will be inhabited forever. People will come from the towns of Judah and the villages around Jerusalem... ...from the territory of Benjamin and the western foothills... ...from the hill country and the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings, incense, and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. This is the word of God. Amen. Why was it that six days ago, in Blacksburg, Virginia, in the United States, a 23-year-old student locked the doors of a college building and indiscriminately shot Injured and killed, both students and faculty, to a final and dreadful body count of 32 individuals. Why? It's the question that everyone has been asking this week, and the question that we always ask on such occasions. And of course, as usual, there have been numerous suggestions as to why. You only need to read the press. Some are of the opinion that it's really a case of a lack of gun control in the United States. Others alternatively believe that, no, in actual fact, it's a lack of guns in the campuses. At least that was the difficulty because there was no method of self-defense. Others still have cited the authorities who could and perhaps should have intervened earlier. And still others blame the college itself for an apparent failure to communicate between the first and second bouts of shootings? Or was it just as some have suggested, really just a case, a sad case of mental illness and demons in a young man's head? Well, whatever you think of the plausibility of all these various suggestions, I don't come this morning with yet more human opinion. Because in actual fact, what we need to hear in these sorts of situations, and indeed at all times, is not the wavering wonderings of man, which change and which conflict with one another, but the sure and authoritative word of God. And what does God say in a matter like this? Maybe you're interested. Maybe you've been asking that question. Well, we have the answer this morning as he takes us really to the heart of the matter. And what God says, in effect, is this, that at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And he says that the problem of the human heart is actually the problem of sin. And he says that sin, though an antiquated idea to many people today, actually provides the most reasonable explanation for the kind of carnage we've seen this week all around us, and also the chaos which rages within us, what is going on in the wickedness of our own experience. Now, this is the very topic that Jeremiah is addressing in the 17th chapter of his prophecy. And in fact, though some have described this chapter as Jeremiah's miscellaneous file. it's a sort of ragbag of ideas. I do believe that through all the twists and turns, there is a common thread that is running through it from start to finish. And it is this issue of sin. It is sin that is contended with throughout the chapter. And we we meet this sin as we also come into contact with three characters. First of all, the Lord. Secondly, the prophet. And thirdly, the people of Judah. So first of all, the Lord, in verses 1 to 11... And the Lord's diagnosis. Uh, not long before coming to the chapel, uh, I, one evening, had a sudden pain down one side of my face. Uh, it suddenly came on, and over a period of a couple of hours, I lost all the sensation down one side of my face. So we went up to the, the doctor, and I had various ga- guesses at this kind of thing. I'm not a doctor like Norman is. And when I sat down with the doctor, he said, it's actually Bell's palsy that that you have. And I was rather upset when he added that I would be unable to speak properly for four weeks, which is a bit of a problem for me. But at least I knew from that point forward what the accurate diagnosis was. I could contend with it, therefore. And you see, this is a great problem in the world today, that people sense something is wrong. They they feel the shooting pain, that things are not quite right. But But while they know the symptoms are there, they really don't have the blind clue as to what is actually wrong. Well, not so says the Lord of my people. I want them to be very clear as to what the problem is in their condition. And in fact, you notice that it's only in the second word, into the paragraph, into the chapter, that you get the diagnosis. No waiting around. The Lord says it is sin. And what follows is really an initial description of sin. The Lord says, first of all, that sin is indelible, verse 1. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool and inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. He says, your sin is permanently engraved in your hearts and, and in your worship, inwardly and outwardly. Just as in these days, an iron tool was used to permanently mark a surface, usually marble. And therefore, if sin is a disease, it's important to know that it is a permanent disease. It's not like the cold that comes one week and hopefully goes the next week, but it is a permanent fixture. It is indelible. It is secondly transmittable. Verse two, even their children... Rodney was praying for children a moment ago, but look at this verse. Even the children, remember their altars and Asherah poles. This is the idolatry that was going on in the land. Beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. Here is a principle we have to understand that idolatry is infectious. And it does pass from generation to generation, from parents to their children. And we see this so often today in so many communities where the parents have gone awry. It has this transmitting effect. And notice certainly that it is consequential. In verses 3 and 4 My mountain and the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away and plunder together with your high places. You will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know. Every disease Causes us to lose something, the function of something. And in this case, Judah will also lose something. A loss of land, a loss of wealth, and a loss of freedom as they will be enslaved eventually to the Babylonians. Now incidentally, and in case you're switching off at this point in the sermon, uh, do not think that this problem is only peculiar to Judah that this is somehow a rare entity, this whole business of sin. Because in actual fact, sin is the most prevalent problem that there is in every society, indeed, across the whole globe. The New Testament tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, meaning the whole world, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And it means, therefore, that we, we study sin this morning, not as some medical students, who are examining a very rare disease and and sort of saying to each other, oh, this is so curious, this is so interesting, but it's also so rare. Sin is more common than the common cold. And unfortunately, it is much more deadly than the worst super virus, as they talk about in these days. So that's just in case you're wondering why we'd better pay attention as we listen to the rest of what the Lord says. Let me suggest to you that he then moves from this initial description to really an in-depth analysis. Some of you perhaps have went to the doctor, the hospital, you get a kind of general diagnosis, it's a bit of a shock, and then maybe you go back a couple of weeks later and they give you some more of the detail. Well, verses 5 to 9 are really the detail. And they're really an expose of human sin. If you ask what is really at the core of sin, then the Lord gives some definitions. Listen to these. First of all, sin trusts in man, not God. Do you want a good definition of sin? So that if someone asks you, what is this disease you have? Tell them this, says the Lord, that sin is the sorry condition of trusting in man, not God. On some occasions, it may involve trusting other men, trusting in man around us in that sense, men and women, for security, for economy, for technology, military. But, you know, trusting in man can also have the sense of trusting in this man or this woman. In fact, this is probably the most common form. We may say to all and sundry that it's in God we trust, but in our heart of hearts, the rhythm and the beat is really in self we trust. And we're really no different than Adam and Eve way back when in the garden, trusting our own ingenuity, trusting our own wisdom, and following our own sense of what is right and what is wrong, even to the defiance of God's word. And if I may be so blunt, This is terribly stupid because you know, don't you, that if we walk away from God, it is to walk away from life itself and to depart from the place of blessing to the cursed place. You notice that verse five. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. I know how different it could have been if we had put our trust in the Lord, verse 7 because blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. And what happens to this individual? He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that never fails to bear fruit. Really couldn't be any clearer. Trusting in God brings life, trusting in man brings death. And did you know that? To trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Or what is the other one we quote? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do you know these are more than bumper stickers? These are more than just nice little promises for guidance. They are actually an issue of whether we sin or not, of whether we live or die, spiritually speaking. It is that important. But this is not the only definition the Lord gives. Notice the second thing. He also adds that the sinful heart not only trusts man, not God, but secondly, deceives man, but not God. I was watching a program the other week, and it was all about con artists. People who trick others out of money. And it was showing you various video clips of real life situations where people had done something like this one man for example it's maybe a little trivial but he enjoyed a fancy meal out at this wonderful restaurant and he ran up a bill of 80 pounds and through tricking the people at the table next to him and getting them to signal to the staff under other pretenses he actually got them to pick up his bill 80 pounds they had to pay it they didn't even know the guy Well, you know, when I watched that, I thought that was very tricky. Indeed, deeply deceitful. But the Lord says, verse 9, listen to this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? God says, think of the most tricky individual that you know. The most deceitful scheme that has ever been conjured up. And realize that your heart is trickier than all of that. It is deceitful above all things. In fact, our heart is a Jacob. Because you see that word deceitful, it comes from the same root word in the Old Testament as Jacob. And if you recall this Old Testament character, remember what his name meant. He was a cheater and a twister and a grasper and a deceiver. And God says, Your heart. And my heart is a Jacob. And of course, the first thing that it does is deceive the person who owns it. Do you know that your heart plays tricks on you? Your heart tricks you into thinking that you are better than you actually are. It performs a sleight of hand to keep you from the facts of your own sin. Indeed, that's why verse 9 concludes, who can understand it? And the, the implication is that we can't. Human beings can't. It's beyond us to know the depth of our own depravity, our own capacity. I was very interested to listen to one fellow student on that college campus. He was interviewed after the Virginia shooting, and he was a classmate of the killer. An interviewer was asking him about him and, and what, he, what he made of this chap, and he said, you know, I always knew that he was capable of doing something like that. See, his implication was that there's a capable category, some who can do really hideous things, and presumably that there's an incapable category. Oh, we would never do such a thing as that, the lion's share of us. Winston Churchill didn't agree. I don't know what kind of Christian commitment that he had, but listen to what he said. Under sufficient stress... Starvation, terror, warlike passion, or even cold intellectual frenzy. The modern man we know so well will do the most terrible deeds and his modern woman will back him up. Maybe we need to listen to Winston Churchill this morning if we don't believe in his pithy statement. Maybe we don't believe in the Bible this morning. Maybe we have to do that. And if we don't, then maybe it's our heart talking this morning. I know this from my own heart, how it works. My heart is rather like a digital camera. I go out, maybe with the family, and we take a number of shots throughout the day, and I come back at the end of the day, and I look through, and all the photographs are perfect. And I think to myself, I must be wonderful at taking all these snapshots. And of course, what I'm forgetting is that throughout the day, I've subconsciously almost been deleting all the bad shots. And there's absolutely hundreds of them. There's a few that I've actually shot well. You know, that's what our heart does all the time. It deletes all the bad shots, and it, and it leaves the good ones, and it makes me think that I'm really wonderful when actually there's something deeply flawed. And you see, I may dupe myself, but I will not dupe or deceive God. Isn't it a most scary fact that verse 9 and verse 10 come together in this passage? Isn't it frightening that the heart is deceitful above all things, Who can know it? Verse 9. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, examine the mind, to reward a man according to his conduct. I know, says the Lord. And I will hold you accountable for the person that you really are deep within. And you know, friends, if we take this at face value, which we should then we really shouldn't be sitting comfortably this morning in our seats. Indeed, we should, at least in a spiritual sense, be where Jeremiah is in verses 12 to 18. On our knees before the Lord, pleading for his help and for his healing. As we turn from the Lord's diagnosis to the prophet's deliverance. Now, again, you'll notice in this section that there's a transition now in the main player in the passage. Uh, up until this point, the Lord has been speaking through Jeremiah to the people. But now from verse 12, the Lord ceases to speak through his prophet, and the prophet begins to speak to the Lord. It's once more what we saw in chapters 14 to 16 last Sunday. Jeremiah, the prophet, is praying. He's the praying prophet. But what is interesting, and I think this is Fascinating, as I was looking at this week, up until this point, Jeremiah has been primarily standing in the gap for other people. He has been an intercessor. He has been praying for the sins of his nation. But look now, we find that Jeremiah is pleading for his own sin. Heal me, verse 14, and I shall be healed. Save me. And I shall be saved. Now, what has led Jeremiah to this place of pleading with the Lord? In one sense, of course, all that Jeremiah has been proclaiming so far has brought him to this point. As he thought over the implications of it. I can say from my own little preaching experience, how often it is as you are here or behind some pulpit somewhere and you are preaching to someone God's truth that you are convicted of your own sermon. And you know that the first person that has to put the truth into practice is you. So maybe there's a sense of that with Jeremiah as he's proclaiming the word of God about the sinfulness of the human heart. But notice in a more immediate sense that verses 12 and 13 are preparatory for his confession. And I've called the first stage of this comprehension. As Jeremiah stands before God, as Jeremiah, as it were, surveys his attributes, and as he recognizes really who God is, in all his glory and in all his greatness, he he recognizes, verse 12, that the Lord is king. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning. And he understands that the Lord, who is worthy of honor, is also the one who is worthy to judge. The Lord is judge. Verse 13. All who forsake you will be put to shame. And God is going to do the shaming. And then he understands a third thing, and this is beautiful as it follows from the others, that the Lord is saviour. He is our only hope, O Lord, the hope of Israel. And as he has this picture of God as as king and as judge and, and as savior, he can only but feel his own failure. I want you to know it always happens that way. That a true conviction of sin comes as we first of all gaze at the greatness and perfection of who God is. We may feel bad about certain things as we compare ourselves to others. But we will only be driven to our knees in repentance when we look to the perfection and the purity of God. Maybe compared to other people, you're doing quite well. But it is against God that you must be compared. And Jeremiah is driven, I think, to his knees. The passage doesn't tell us. But there's this great sense of confession. And only now does he pray, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. It took me a little time thinking about this, pondering why Jeremiah prays to be saved. Have you thought about that as you read the flow of the passage? Especially him praying to be healed. Because remember in verse 9, remember the Lord had described above all things The human heart being deceitful and beyond cure. Beyond cure. And now he prays for healing for his heart. And I think the explanation is this, that verse 9 describes the problem from a human perspective. There really is no human agency and no human doctor and no earthly prescription that can possibly cure his dilemma. But verse 14 is not from a human perspective at all. It is from a divine perspective. And it implies, indeed, it declares that God, the Lord, can heal him from his disease. And he can save him from his heart of sin. Isn't that a wonderful truth this morning? And we know so much more than Jeremiah about how this is possible today. We know that God, in a later day than Jeremiah, would send his son into the world... And that Jesus would terribly be wounded for our sins. And that our disease, as it were, would be laid upon him in order that we might be healed. And you know, you can know this morning, if you don't already know it, deliverance from God, by God, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice in your place. Jeremiah pleads for deliverance from God. Secondly, notice verses 15 to 18. He prays for deliverance from man. This is the case in many of our own experience too. We become Christians and we are saved from the wrath of God. But all of a sudden, we've made new enemies. And we start to feel the brunt of the wrath of man. People don't like our profession of faith. They don't like our commitment to God's truth. They don't like the fact that we tell them that they are a sinner in need of grace. And so often taunting words come. Verse 15. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled, they say. Evidently, Jeremiah has been preaching his message of judgment for some time. As we have for a couple of months now. And as time passes, as they go down the road, the people say, Where is the fulfillment of all this, Jeremiah? You know, this, this great army that's coming from the north, we can't even see it anywhere in the horizon. And so it is that people sometimes challenge and taunt us today about the truth of Christian doctrine. And I think verse 18 also implies perhaps a physical aspect as well. It speaks, Jeremiah speaks of my persecutors. But I, I think it's the taunting words that are the worst bit. Did You notice that after verse 15, verse 16 comes, I have not run away from being your shepherd. That was the bit that really got to Jeremiah. That was the bit that made him want to run away and flee from being God's man, proclaiming God's truth. And isn't that true today in our culture? There's a a lack of physical persecution in so many aspects. And yet the hardest bit is to put our heads above the parapet and to proclaim humbly what we believe to be the truth of God's word. Because we know that the jibes will come. Jeremiah says, I'm not packing my bags anytime soon. But notice what he also says. Lord, if I'm going to do this, I need two things from you. First of all, I need courage. Do not be a terror to me. Verse 17, you are my refuge in the day of disaster. I need to know, Lord, that you are with me, that you are for me, that you are not my terror, but you are my refuge. And secondly, I need justice. Bringing them the day of disaster, destroy them with double destruction. I need to know that justice will meet the persistent, unrepentant, Enemies of God who do not only oppose me, but oppose you. We saw this the other week. Jeremiah's concern for God's justice and God's name and how we need that in our day. You might also perhaps wonder whether Jeremiah has written off the people at this stage, particularly as he raises this prayer to the Lord. In fact, you may wonder in light of this, whether there is any hope for this people, the people of Judah with their indelible sin, with their terrible idolatry. And yet once more, as we've seen again and again in this book, God is not ready to discard them yet. He is a God of great justice, but he is also a God of great love and mercy. And while they don't deserve it, in verses 19 to 27, he brings to them yet another opportunity to come to their senses. And the emphasis falls on the people, the people's decision. Uh, Last evening we were enjoying a nice carryout with some friends and such was the choice on the menu. You know these menus these days, they've got 151,000 choices and it's just very difficult to decide. And we were just talking about the fact that we are just a very indecisive bunch. And uh, one of them said, uh, I said, do you think we're indecisive? He said, I'm not sure about that. You know. (laughs) You know, when it comes to following God and following Jesus, when it comes to trusting and obeying Him, you know, we really cannot sit on the fence. We might think we can sit on the fence, but God will not allow us to sit there. We must make a decision about whether we're going to follow Him. I know the evidence of that comes out in our obedience. And and what we find in these verses is really a test case of obedience. The test case is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was the the Jewish day of rest. It was instituted by God way back at creation. And on that seventh day of the week, according to the Lord's word, that people would rest from their work, or at least that was the idea. And it was really to mark them out as distinctive, to show all the other nations that they belong to the Lord. It was a sort of badge of loyalty to God. And therefore, you can see why this was so important. It wasn't just some command that the Lord brings up. And you can see why one commentator suggests even that the people's reaction to the Sabbath day as a gift was a fair indicator of their spiritual temperature. Just look at the way they're observing the Sabbath and you'll tell where their hearts are at. It was an external evidence of the inward reality of their worship or the lack of their heart's commitment to God. And of course, there are many parallels with that today. External evidences of inward reality. Though it is not the be all and end all that you are in church this morning, that you come to meet with God's people regularly, though it is not all whether or not you've been baptized, though it is not everything whether you outwardly practice what seems to be a Christian life, nevertheless, it can be indicative of what's going on in your heart, because we live out what is going on on the inside. And the sad truth was that Judah's attitude to the Sabbath was indicative of their sinful hearts. In Amos chapter 8, for example, a cross-reference passage, we read this, When will the new moon be over? That was one of the festivals where they rested from work. That we may sell grain and the Sabbath. That we may offer wheat for salve. And deal deceitfully with false balances. This was kind of contemporary to Jeremiah. When can we get this religious nonsense out of the way so that we can get back to business? Back to making money? On this day that the Puritans said should have been the market day for the soul. And so they have to make a choice. And it is this critical choice that the Lord lays before them. Probably Jeremiah is surprised. He's just been praying for the smiting of his enemies. The Lord says, look, I want you to go out among this people. Go right down to where they are. In fact, go to the people's gate. The gates of the city were essentially the shopping malls of the time. It was where uh, the trade came in and out, where the people came in and out. They didn't call it the guile. They didn't call it Ocean Terminal. It was just the people's gate. And some of the other gates had other names. And he says, go down to this place and lay the choice before the people. Verse 24, the emphasis is on this fact that if you are careful to obey me, bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it. Then what will happen if they do this? I will bless your ruler, says the Lord. Verse 25, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through your gate. He says, you know, you will have rulers over you. For for, forever, he says, you'll never cease to have a king on your throne. And I will bless your worship, verse 26. The people will gather from every city, every town, every village, every hill to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices, incense and thank offerings to the Lord. The sacrificial system in the temple, he says, it will continue. It won't be removed. The temple won't be destroyed. And yet he says, verse 27, this is only if you obey me. But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of the city, then, and here's a scary promise, I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem and will consume her fortresses. Later on, you can read the record of how that happened. Do you, do you see this morning how serious sin is? God is pathologically, we might say, serious about sin. Because he is holy through and through. He will not brush it under the carpet. And therefore, the matter of the condition of your heart this morning, I cannot tell you how important it is. It is an issue of blessing or cursing. And still before us, the question sits, where does my loyalty lie? Who will I choose? What will I trust in? Will I obey Jesus as Lord? Make that Christian commitment, if I've never done it before, continue in that Christian commitment? Or will I obey my own sinful and deceitful impulses? Because, by the way, if you're a Christian this morning, you will know yourself that you continue to face the challenge of sin on a daily basis. Perhaps in Sunday school you learned this, that in the past you were set free from the penalty of sin, that in the present you are set free from the power of sin, and that only in the future will you be set free from the presence of sin. And while sin does not continue to reign in your mortal body, nevertheless, it remains in your body, and it it fights all the while with your regenerate soul. Could you sing this hymn with John Newton if you're a believer in Christ? Wonderful words. Strange and mysterious is my life. What opposites I feel within. A stable peace, a constant strife. The rule of grace, the power of sin. Too often I am captive-led, yet daily triumph in my head. Could you sing that on a Monday morning, on a Friday night, or some other time? When you feel the conflict. How about this verse? Different powers within me strive, and grace and sin by turns prevail. I grieve, rejoice, decline, revive, and victory hangs in doubtful scale. But Jesus has his promise past that grace shall overcome at last. Ever felt that struggle? Ever wavered between two opinions, even as a Christian? Choose this day who you will serve. Choose it afresh if you're already a believer in Christ. I think it's very sad to say That Judah did not choose God. Their Sabbath observance didn't improve. And the reason that outwardly they did not change is because the Lord's diagnosis was true. There was something wrong in the heart. Dallas Willard, in a very excellent book, I think, Renovation of the Heart, he writes this. Speaking of all the revolutions and the kinds of revolutions in the world, he says this. The revolution of Jesus is first and foremost a revolution in the human heart. Just think about that. It may affect all sorts of things as we look around us in our societies. But first and foremost, it's a renovation and a revolution of your heart. You know, it used to be that the, the physical heart, if it, if it was terribly faulty, there wasn't an awful lot that the doctors could do for you. And yet nowadays, with the wonders of modern medicine, you know, they can even sometimes do heart transplants. And some of them are successful. But, you know, long before that possibility physically was conceived, God had been performing such treatments Spiritually. And he, he promised later, even in the same book, Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me. Listen, not just with their actions, not just with their Sabbaths, but with all their heart. Or over in Ezekiel, I think it's even more beautiful. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. You know what? That promise is still in force today. God remains the most brilliant heart surgeon that ever existed. And his expertise is dealing with and renewing deceitful hearts. Like your heart and like my heart. That's what we need. We need a new heart. That's what Virginia needs today. That's what Edinburgh needs, and that's what you need, unless your heart is playing tricks on you this morning. Let's pray.